Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that takes a broad look at how cars and transport impact our community. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including big ideas for transport's future. Is there such a thing as a luxury four-wheel drive that is capable of handling both the on-road and off-road situations? We road test the Toyota Land Cruiser Sahara. Cost you nearly $130,000 to get it on the road, but is it good in all situations? And we road test the sporty version of the last of the Australian-built Camrys. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories including Australia's first pub on wheels. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. Quite a number of car companies have created separate luxury brands such as Lexus and Infinity. Even Citroen have created the DS brand to reach a more selective market. Toyota tried to segregate another market when they created the Sion brand in 2003 with the intention of targeting young people. Toyota established Sion as a separate brand for a series of models originally designed for the Japanese market. The brand, sold through Toyota's US dealer network, had an early hit with a small boxy micro-wagon called the XB. Sion sales peaked at 173,000 in 2006, but have trended down ever since. Toyota sold just over 56,000 Sion vehicles in 2015, a decline of 68% in a US market that favours larger sports utility vehicles and trucks. Toyota has confirmed that it will finally pull the plug on its Sion brand and will rebadge three 2017 model Sion cars as Toyotas starting in August. Overdrive believes that the future of transport will not be served by just traditional approaches. Now the New South Wales government is hosting a 12-month program to bring together some of the best tech minds to uncover trends and technologies that will revolutionise the way government and customers plan, build and use transport. The Future Transport program starts with a two-day summit in April, bringing together thought leaders, IT specialists, innovators, entrepreneurs, futurists, transport leaders and academics from Surrey Hills in Sydney to Silicon Valley in the US. The community can get involved through online forums, a youth summit and new partnerships to encourage emerging ideas and products. The summit will also feature an industry ideas and innovations lab where companies can register to pitch products and ideas that could improve transport and the customer experience. In 2014, a trial carried out by Transport for London on three stretches of road showed that by removing central white lines, it resulted in a reduction in vehicle speeds. Explaining the results, TFL suggests that centre line removal introduces an element of uncertainty which is reflected in lower speeds. The results show a statistically significant reduction in vehicle speeds by a minimum of 8.7 km per hour and a maximum of 13.8 km per hour, all as a result of removing central markings. Similar trials have taken place in Wiltshire and Derby, and central markings, a feature of British roads for almost 100 years, have not been replaced on three roads in South London. 
Plans are also being drawn up for a shared space pilot scheme in Norfolk, which could see lines removed on narrower roads near the Queen's Sandringham estate. Some local council officials in Minneapolis are considering tightening the restrictions on urban drive-throughs. A report is being prepared which may strengthen council controls of drive-throughs and minimise their impact on people walking. However, a local newspaper has hit back saying that drive-throughs are not a danger to pedestrians, no more than any other obstacle pedestrians face in a busy city. If you want to walk dreamlike, they say, then find a park. An associate professor at Florida Atlantic University's School of Urban and Regional Planning says the consolidation of driveways will always lead to a reduction in crashes. The debate about freight transport often centres around the impacts of large trucks. But one of the big issues is what the industry calls the last kilometre, transporting the goods, the final step to the customer. In New South Wales, there is soon to be a trial of a new method of getting your groceries. The click and collect trial allows customers to shop online with Woolworths and pick up their shopping from a specially designated locker at railway stations on their way home. The first station to get the lockers is Bondi Junction. Similar services have been implemented on rail networks internationally, including the London Underground. However, this is the first Australian train trial. Once the trial is complete and evaluated, Sydney Trains will explore the possibility of rolling out the initiative on a permanent basis at other suitable stations. An order has to be of at least $30 and not include items that could not fit into a locker, such as a broom. Time will tell if Woolworths is on the right track. Rob Harding, a candidate for Brisbane Lord Mayor, said that if he is elected, he will make trips on Brisbane city-owned public transport free on Fridays for eight months of the year. He said it would cost $28.5 million and save commuters about $400 a year. The Fair Free Friday would need state government approval first because the state government would have to approve receiving less fair revenue. It already cost Brisbane City Council $114 million more to run buses, ferries and city cats than it receives in its share of funding back from the state government. But if it is approved, it would bring a whole new meaning to the term, thank God it's Friday. And that has been the news. The expression four-wheel drive has morphed into the contraction SUV. An SUV could be anything from a baby two-wheel drive, in fact driving the front wheels, right up to a genuine rugged off-road vehicle. Buying an SUV might have little to do with off-road driving. What used to be rugged vehicles with Spartan truck-like comfort are now getting many bells and whistles that you once associated only with upmarket sedans. This week we have been driving the top end of the market in terms of size, cost and luxury features. The Toyota Land Cruiser Sahara. It'll cost you nearly $130,000 to get it on the road. So is it for the road or for the track or does it do both? Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au knows all about these types of vehicles and he joins us on the line now. Rob, thanks very much for your time. Good day, David. 
mate. You're welcome. It's got a lot of luxury, this car, but is it competent off-road? Is it is it a bit of each? It definitely is a bit of each. It, its basic underpinnings is the Land Cruiser 200 vehicle, so it, it is exceptionally competent off-road and exceptionally competent at towing. It just happens to have a large amount of luxury items thrown in there as well. Let's look at some of the luxury. Uh, what sort of things do you get? I mean, obviously electric seats and steering wheels and things, but uh, a few other features as well? Even down to little things like heated and ventilated seats for the front passengers. You know, the, the middle row of passengers have an entertainment system each on the back of the headrest of the front seats. The tailgate is automatic opening and closing. The rear seats are automatic folders. You know, the push of a button and they fold up automatically for you. It's almost as if they've put everything they could possibly think of in terms of making life easier into this vehicle. It's got a sunroof, of course, with a shade. It's even got nice little touches like double visors where you can swing one visor around and block out the sun coming in from the side window and still have one stopping sun coming in from the front. It, it is a very, very comfortable car. Uh, two engines, I believe. The two options are the, the V8 petrol and the V8 diesel. Both of them are good engines, although, to be honest, my pick would be the V8 diesel. That is an absolute beautiful motor that Toyota have developed for this Land Cruiser. It provides plenty of power, and it tor- its torque comes in down low at about 1,600 revs. We're talking about a big car, w- well over 2,500 kilograms, and so fuel consumption would be rather high. I think the diesel's rated at 9.5, but, gee, you'd be lucky to get that, wouldn't you? Well, surprisingly enough, because it will cruise on the open road at such low revs and its maximum torque, you actually do get really good economy. And even towing, you get good economy with the diesel. The petrol is another matter. You really do have to drive it carefully to get any sort of reasonable economy out of it. But the diesel will, around town, it is powerful. And if you do sort of have a heavy right foot, it will chew through the fuel a little bit. But uh, I would pick the diesel every day of the week over the petrol. Yeah, I drove the petrol one and uh, we were getting some pretty high uh, consumption figures. But again, you would expect that. Driving it on the road, a gentle giant, it's not too bad? It's actually surprising. that The engineers have done a really good job of making it feel a lot smaller than it actually is. As you said earlier, David, this is a vehicle that's somewhere around 2.7, 2.8 tonnes and over five metres in length. And yet when you're driving it, it certainly doesn't feel like that. It feels a lot more nimble and a lot lighter than it actually is. It wallows a bit. I mean, it's clearly not sports car handling, but you'd expect that from something, not the least of which is that it's comfortable. The thing you've said there is absolutely spot on. It's not a sports car. It is a fit-for-purpose car. And that is its basic underpinnings is an off-road vehicle. And the compromise you need in a suspension package to have good on-road handling and still have comfortable off-road handling with the wheel articulation and all that sort of stuff that you require is a, is a difficult process. And I think the Sahara particularly has probably done one of the best jobs of, of balancing that compromise of any of those large four-wheel drives. Turning circle, not its strength. In fact, it almost doesn't have one. It's... <laughs> You've really got to have room to get it around, haven't you? Yeah, you really notice how big this car is. The reverse of what we were saying earlier, how big it is when you're in a tight car park, especially when you're trying to park next to a pole and somebody's on the line on the other side. That's That tests your skills a lot, actually. Rob, it's lovely to talk to you. We've covered some very nice practical things as well. Thanks very much for your time. 
David, good to talk to you. Thank you. Rob Fraser from the website Osroma. If you want to know anything about RV vehicles, it's certainly a place to go. Osroma.com.au. And we were talking there about the Toyota Land Cruiser Sahara. A big, expensive 130000 to get it on the road. Just a bit under, perhaps. But it is nonetheless one that combines both luxury and off-road capability. And we have a longer interview with Rob about the Toyota where we cover issues such as all the technology that helps you in off-road situations but also some limitations particularly in the third row of seats and the space that those seats take up. Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast from iTunes or your favourite podcast deliverer. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. At the 1989 Chicago Car Show, Mazda showed the world their little sports car called the Miata in America, which derives from the old high German word for reward. It was initially marketed, of course, in Japan as the Unos Roadster. In Australia, of course, it is the MX-5. And in other places, it's called the MX-5 Miata as well, so that name does stick around the world. It was Japan's take on the British sports car of the 60s and 70s, really. Perhaps even a little bit of the Lotus Elan to it. A lightweight two-seater roadster, front-engine, rear-wheel drive. Not a lot of power, but a lot of fun. In 2000, it was recognised as the best-selling sports car ever, having sold over 530,000 units, have now sold over 900,000 units. It's now in its fourth generation. The latest model has a significant makeover in terms of its looks, and I think it's much better. I think it's uh, overtones of a 1968 Stingray, which is a good-looking car, but more of that later. By the way, Wheels Magazine gave it their car of the year, so it certainly raised eyebrows. Errol Smith and I have been driving a small engine version of it, the 1.5-litre manual, and Errol joins me on the line now. Errol, did it impress the people who saw it? David, it literally turned heads. Several people walked past it, said it, it's nice car without being prompted. And my favourite experience was approaching an, another MX-5 from the, from the other direction, and they saw my MX-5 and got all excited and waved and... There's a fraternity of owners there, I think. Yes, yeah. I, I think... That, that was the yeah. old, one of the older models? Yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, but she, she still picked it as, a, as an MX-5 from a distance. Just a few basic facts about it. Uh, how many engines have, uh, are, the, are your choices? You can have 1.5 or a 2-litre. That's it. And not a lot of power. No, not really. This isn't a sports car in the traditional sense of something that's really fast. This is more of a, a fun car. I think that's what they're aiming at. And certainly the, the two doors and that. I think the, the 1.5 litre has about 98 kilowatts and the two litre only has about 118. Not a huge increase, but some suggest that's good. Although it's nice to drive 
a low-powered car for a while. Now, this one, of course, it doesn't have a lot of power, but it also it doesn't have a lot of weight, does it? Mm. Yeah, well, it weighs about a tonne, which sounds like a lot, but that's pretty light these days. Yeah, about 1,000 kilograms. A Commodore's about 1,400 or more. A, a big SUV starts to get 2,300, nearly yeah. tw- over twice the size. Yeah, I mean, it's tiny. It weighs nothing. It's very nimble. A manual, how many speeds has it got? Well, automatic and manual are the same, aren't they, in number of speeds? Six-speed. In either in either auto or manual, I have to say I love the gearbox. Probably one of the best gearboxes I've had in something for for a while. It was a short throw. It was notchy, and it was a close ratio gearbox. When mm. when you revved it out, you didn't sort of rev it to a little thing and drop it to another gear and let it blur, go mm. like that. It was nice and and I, I remember both you and I had been driving a large talking about big weighted cars Land Cruiser Toyota Land Cruiser Sahara $100,000 or more SUV to hop into this little Mazda MX-5 was just wonderful comfortable fitted like a glove mm. snapped it into gear not to drive fast necessarily but just to feel like you were working with the car I know it's a cliche but this feels like a driver's car you feel a bit more close to the the road and the mechanics and and every part of the car just feels a bit more a bit less removed than it is in in modern cars, which sort of try and take everything away from you. You still have to do a lot with this car, which is nice because you are involved with it. It's got a convertible, but a manual roof. Well, pretty much everything on this car is manual. You get uh, electric mirrors and, and windows, but that's pretty much it. There's not a lot of features or adjustments or anything. Uh, the roof's completely manual. They've pared it down to the basics to sort of produce something that's very simple and very light um, and also quite inexpensive in the scheme of things. Errol, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. That's Errol Smith, and we were talking about the Mazda MX-5 sports car. A whole lot of fun. And there's a more detailed interview with Errol about the MX-5 on our website at www.drivenmedia.com.au where we talk, among other things, about the new design, which I think is much better and which I think, in a positive sense, has design cues that relate back to the 1968 Stingray. You can also hear it on a podcast by going to iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Let's uh, move on to some quirky news. Now, Brian, you have a story for us. Well, certainly, David, this is an interesting uh, mobile bar idea, and it's a pedal powered pub. It's coming to Adelaide very soon. It's uh, come from sort of Europe and uh, it's been in, the, in America. And basically, it's a 16-seater bicycle. It's like a, a four-wheeled vehicle where um, there's a driver sitting in the middle and around the outside are bar stools and pedals. It works as a bar and basically you can jump on board, sit on the stool pedal which allows the vehicle to drive around and there's a a non-drinking driver who steers and brakes so you can sit on the bar you can see the sights and drink alcohol as it passes through the city so um 
I'm concerned, of course, it's called handlebar, but I'm concerned that, uh, you know, in case of a crash, it could be mistaken for a mass glassing attack or something like that. <laughs> it wouldn't be uh, exactly accident-proof, is not it? I mean, drunk driving could... Yeah, the, the driver, of course, I presume, is meant to be sober and that. Sober. Yeah, yes. so, so the bartender is the, is the designated driver, to be yes. how it works. Yeah. And everyone who's drinking there basically has to contribute to moving the vehicle along. So what you if you don't do there. your fair effort? Well, that's a good point, isn't it? I guess you could. You can just sort of... Um, I, I want to know where the toilet is. After I've had a drink or two, pretty soon I need the toilet. And, uh, you know, it's possibly not all that compatible with uh, um, NRL players who go to the, the, the uh, casino probably are quite well catered for. They go to the toilet without leaving their chair. But um, I guess in this sense you could do that the same. It's kind of like a train where the toilet, you know, ejects the onto the tracks. <laughs> I wonder whether it'll lead to a whole new range of cocktail names, you know, like Back Road uh, Rat Run. You oh, know? okay, yeah, that's a nice idea. Screaming Road. Yeah. <laughs> Four-car Four-car pile-up. <laughs> <laughs> now, it costs something between uh, 440 and $550 for bookings for groups of 16 in Adelaide when it starts operating. So, uh, so you have to book... You have to plan to actually use this thing. Yeah, and, and mm. I think eight people can, can drink at each one and they drive along in a bit of a convoy, yes, on footpaths and possibly on roads as well, with people convivially drinking. It's a neat idea. I believe we should go and check it out. Uh, well, yeah, maybe we should road test it. Mm. The, the 450 to 500, $440 to $550... Does that include some alcohol or is that extra? Mm, good question. I, 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 That's it, good. I do appear to have made something that runs purely on ethanol. <laughs> <laughs> I think the deal is that you pay that money and you get to the drinks as well. So, you know, it's kind of like a party bus that, okay. you, that you push around. It's gone through quite extensive uh, assessment uh, in Adelaide before it was allowed. <laughs> the, the authorities there say that it passed all of their requirements. <laughs> they tested it excessively. <laughs> the guy driving it, it has an Irish sort of theme to it. It's a, a funny guy with a, 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 a green T-shirt or, or sloppy Joe and a big funny hat on it and what have you. Of course, by the end of the trip, everyone's falling in love with him, aren't they? You know, and sort of, I like the coach driver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Errol, you have a story of a boat. Yeah, David, apparently the mega-rich want to be green, uh, or at least seen to be green. And the French like their luxury. So they've sort of put the two together, and, and they've come up with the ultimate transport for the mega-rich. It's an 85-metre-long wind-solar hybrid super yacht. It's called the Komaribi, which is Japanese for something I've got deep. a lot of money. Um, basically, it's a trimaran with sails and solar panels, uh, and it's full of toys, including a helipad, storage for small sailboats, and a mini submarine. Um, but uh, this is um, aimed at the the mega rich. It basically, if you don't call yourself a billionaire, uh, don't bother inquiring. Yes, yeah, I like it. It's elegant and simple. You remember the last story, Brian, we did about a big billionaire's boat? It was as ugly as sin. Yeah, that's right. It was horrible, sort of modern, stealthy-looking thing. Mm. At least this thing, I like the idea that it has, the sails are more like wings that, that turn, which is quite a modern 
concept. And I like the idea that they can supplement, um, uh, you know, its, its propulsion with uh, electricity's generated solar waves. Mm. But still, um, I guess, you know, we, I guess we have to report on the mega-rich things. Uh, uh, I think um, a, a billionaire wrecked a whole bunch of the uh, Great Barrier Reef not long ago by anchoring his super yacht there. So let's just uh, look. Uh, but he's allowed to do it now because he's got solar power. Yes, that's right. So he can be green while he's munching the um, the barrier reef. Yeah, to pieces. just to sort of rub in the greenness. There's actually a tree on board. Because <laughs> yes. the name, the name Koro Komorebi, is uh, Japanese for sunlight filtering through trees. That's a lovely concept, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Filtering, gonna... through, filtering through my, my dollars. Mind you, though, uh, just the idea of these uh, wind sails, I'm, I'm already feeling like I'm, uh, I'm getting a bit of wind farm sickness just looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Do they make it hum when the wind goes through it? Oh, look, you, know, you can't hear it, of course, but it, uh, it really disturbs your insides, causes whales to die, I believe. <laughs> Baby harp seals. <laughs> of course, someone pointed out, why on earth do we need wind farms? We've got enough wind already. Why do we need to... <laughs> uh, now, Brian, you're a cyclist. Here's something that might, uh, might appeal to you. Yes. Uh, in his next movie, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger may use the line, drive on the correct side of the road if you want to live. Uh, t- the Arnie the Terminator visited... Um, the UK, and he decided to cycle around central Edinburgh. So he was seen coming out of his hotel, he got a hire bike and a couple of friends, leapt on the bike, no helmet, and then just zoomed off driving on the right-hand side of the road. So he uh, he hadn't actually made the leap from um, America to uh, the UK where they drive on the left side of the road. And so he spent the day racing around on the wrong side of the road all through Edinburgh, taking selfies, having photographs with people. And, um, yeah, so he's, uh, he survived, um, and uh, it doesn't appear that he's been pinged for it at all, but uh, he certainly gained a lot of attention uh, with his uh, crazy antics. I'll be back. Or maybe I won't. Yeah, mm. I might not make it. In some ways, I thought it might have been that if only he was wearing Lycra, that sort of alpha male bike rider, I don't care about anyone else. If I want to ride the wrong way down the lane, I'm going to do it. That's right. No one's going to hit me. I'm the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Only I think we're not wearing a helmet and riding a push bike, he might well be uh, terminated. Yes. And gentlemen, that has been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. No worries, David. Thanks, David. Brian Smith and Errol Smith talking about some unusual stories to do with all the fields of transport from boats to bikes to cars. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>